I try to watch the, the Passion of the Christ every Easter or thereabouts, but there's a movie that I try to watch every July 4th, and that's, <clears throat> that's Saving Private Ryan. Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is given an assignment to go rescue one of four sons of this woman who's lost three sons in, uh, I believe, I didn't do our research, I believe it's World War II. Um, it's in World War II, and she has four sons, and three of them die. She gets the, I think she gets the notice of all three deaths in the same day, and she just crumbles to the ground. Um, and her youngest son is still out there. And so the movie's about John Miller, Tom Hanks, going to find, going to save Private Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon in the film. And the whole movie, he's trying to find him, essentially. He and his task force. And toward the end of the movie, they find him, shells coming in everywhere, tanks. I mean, they're in the middle of a huge barrage. And he is dying. Tom Hanks, John Miller, is dying. He's given his life to save Matt Damon. And Matt Damon, he's forcing Matt Damon by the order, by superior orders to go. He's risked the whole life of his team. Matt Damon doesn't want to go, but he makes him leave. He saves his life. And his dying words are two words. Earn this. Earn this. The scriptures are very clear that God made us to know him and to be with him. He is a God who is holy and perfect and pure and just, and he cannot look on sin. And he didn't make us broken and sinful. He made us in his image, resplendent, loving him. But the scriptures are also clear that we fell. But his standard didn't fall. And so that presented a huge problem. He wants to be with us, but he can't look on sin. Psalm 15, one through two, um, put it really concisely. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? In other words, who, who can be with you? The psalmist goes on, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Here's the answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And it goes on. But I think that's enough. Basically, God is saying, earn this. But the rest of the scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Old Testament is basically an emphatic tone saying, we can't. And then into space and time steps one who did. He earned it in everything he did in his life, and he earned it in his death. And that's what this single word that he speaks tonight means. And I wanna nail it as hard as I can with God's strength and Holy Spirit upon me like a spike. May he do it into our hearts that we might be impressed with the magnitude of the word that he speaks from the cross. Verse 28, as Paul read, he said, it says, knowing that all was finished, John says, he's commenting, Jesus knew everything, it was, it was toward the end of the cross, the six hours he was hanging there, he had done everything necessary, all that his mission required. Knowing that it was all finished, he said, I thirst. He's quoting from a psalm. Everything he, do, he's, he does, he's fulfilling scripture. He's keeping the law. So even in this saying, I thirst, he gets some sour wine, and then he says this in verse 30, and I'll just go ahead and read it again. John 19, verse 30 when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, last words, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In the Greek, this is one word, tetelestai. 
And so I'm just preaching on this one word tonight. It might be the most important word ever uttered by human lips. This word to telestai or it is finished doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't just mean, let me qualify that. It certainly does not just mean it's over. I'm done. It means there's nothing left to be done. It means this, it's complete. So the Latin translation is actually beautiful. It's and, and exactly right. The Latin translation is consumatum est. It has been consummated. It is complete. There's nothing left to do. So this wonderful word, this single word, leads us to at least one question and one problem that I want to sort of work through tonight briefly. The first question is, what is it? It is finished. What's finished? Firstly, I think that he means his mission is finished, the mission of Jesus Christ. In John 4, um, he's, with his, he's actually away from his disciples. They're going to get lunch while he's ministering to a Samaritan woman, just a notorious sinner. Um, and they come back, and he's been revealing himself to her because this is the sort of person he came for. He only came for one type of person, a sinner. He loves to save sinners. He's the Savior. Saviors save. This Savior saves sinners. And so his disciples come back, and they're like, hey, don't you want a sandwich? And he's like, I have food that you don't know of. And my food is to do the will of my Father. Um, at another point, he says this. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And at another, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is finished? In short, what was his mission? His mission was the work that God the Father gave for him, his beloved son, to do. And what was that? It was for him to give his life as a ransom, or just translate, payment for many. To lay his life down. In short, Jesus came to die. The, the Gospels are manifestly not biographies. If you look at just the space alone that they devote toward Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem, which Paul beautifully preached last week, was where the prophets all went to die. And Jesus constantly told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, it's why I came. So he came to fulfill this mission, and on the cross, he fulfills it to a T. He completes the mission, and he says, to tell us die. It's finished. My work's done, my mission's complete. But I just want to say, as a bit of a sidebar, before getting to another reason, that, another thing that I think he's telling us when he says it's finished is this. Not just in his death did he complete the work necessary for us to be reconciled to God. Not just in his death. We have to understand that his payment on the cross is, again, it's the consummation of an entire life of obedience lived, a life of suffering, of rejection, of sorrow, of perfect obedience to the Father, and indeed of passion or suffering. Um, so John Donne, the great English poet, wrote, all his life was a continual passion. Another John, John Calvin, a Frenchman who lived a lot of his life in, in um, Switzerland, he asks this question, how has Christ abolished sin and banished the separ separation between us and God? To this, we can in general reply that he's achieved this for us by the whole, get this, by the whole course of his obedience. Our salvation, as one of my professors would say, our salvation hung on every single act of obedience and every single thought Jesus ever had in his life. 
If, he, if he'd ever not obeyed and loved the Father perfectly from the heart and everything he did, we'd be lost. We'd be lost. Calvin goes on, from the time he took on the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation required in order to redeem us. Fleming Rutledge puts it more succinctly, the life and the death were of one piece. So his mission in coming here from the father that he gladly kept and completed is finished, but also I think this, his payment for us is finished. His payment for you, his payment for me, his payment for all who would come to him. In Leviticus, we, there are just, some of you have walked through in the past few months the Old Testament and you, walk, and you read through Leviticus and the back part of Exodus after the Red Sea, then Leviticus and then Numbers and you just were overwhelmed with the amount of sacrifices, among other things. There, there's a whole book plus of just, here's what God requires, here's how much has to die for us to be made right with him. But hey, even those sacrifices never took away sin. But they have to be offered over and over and over again. But then Jesus comes and he steps into history and he puts a stop to that. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, he died once for all. The word there in the Greek is epipax, and it's used four times in Hebrews. I'm just gonna read the first mention of the four. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Not only did Jesus not have to offer sacrifices for himself, when he offered the sacrifice of himself, it was for us. He needed to offer no sacrifice, but also he did it one time. And the very fact that in Leviticus and the Old Testament for centuries, sacrifices were offered day and night, day and night, sometimes more, was a reminder that those sins aren't taken care of. And the blood of bulls and goats doesn't do anything anyway. They were pointing to someone who was gonna come and what? Do it once for all. He's gonna finish it. He's gonna finish the work. Um, it sent no more sacrifice sends a message. We don't see, there's a reason that we as Protestants, and I don't wanna drive a wedge here, I just wanna make a point, don't have crucifixes. We have crosses without Christ on them. He is finished. The work is done. He is no longer on the cross. We focus on that tonight, but friends, he's not there anymore. He did it once for all. Um, no more sacrifice sends this message. No more payment. I want you to get this. No more payment needed, friend. No more payment needed. Justin, a member here, um, tells me that the Arabic word here is halas. It means enough. That's exactly what this means here. And actually, he gets his boys to say, they can't say stop, stop, or enough. He makes them say halas because he wants to teach them Arabic. And so that he'll tickle them when, he's on the, on the, on the, when they're on his bed or on the floor. He'll tickle them and they'll, and they'll just stop, stop, stop. But until they remember the word halas, he won't stop. It means enough, dad, enough. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying as a banner over his life and death here. Enough. I've done everything necessary. I've made full payment for those who wanna now come. And the father puts his stamp of approval on that. You're right, son. I've poured out all my just wrath against human sin onto you. Do you know why he cried out? It wasn't because the cross hurt so bad. It was because the father both abandoned him and poured out his white hot fury against our sin onto him. 
and he drank it to the last drop. Enough. Halas. Consumatum est. Fleming Rutledge in her slim collection of Good Friday sermons, the seven last words of the cross from which I've taken a good deal of this message, says about this word in particular, there's no harder word about the cross for us to believe than this, it's finished. Um, this is the pro- I, we've talked about a question or two. This is the problem that I alluded to earlier. It's hard for us to believe, friends. I want you to dial in with me for a few minutes. It's hard for you and for me to believe that there's nothing else needed for me to pay God, to be, hey, to be right with him, to be loved by him, to be fully accepted and brought in by him. But this is what this word means. Halas, it is enough. It's been done. How do we disbelieve this? Let me give you a few examples. Good deeds is one. Good deeds is one. I heard someone speaking this week about Jesus and the gospel and saying, I have been trying to be good. I've really been trying hard. If you talk to someone about what is the gospel? Well, I do this, I do that, I'm a pretty good person. You can immediately know they don't understand what the good news of Jesus Christ is. They don't understand the fact that it's finished. It's not that we don't do good works. It's that good works, good deeds are in no part required. He did everything necessary for us to be made right in his life and in his death. It's enough. It's finished. Consumatum est. We do good because we forgiven, are forgiven, not in order to be. And I'll, make, I'll try to um, emphasize that in a bit. Again, another, so good deeds. We do good deeds to try to clean ourselves up, to try to measure up. No. Guilt is another way we disbelieve this, I think. We carry guilt around because of the true sins that we've committed, the things we've done that we know of and that we can't even put our fingers on and don't even want to speak into the silence sometimes, certainly not to somebody else. We carry this guilt around. I heard a psychiatrist just yesterday say, guilt, let me describe guilt. Guilt is I've done something bad, and I know it. We feel this. You hear people say, I can't forgive myself, as if that's virtuous, but here Jesus destroys that. God the Father forgives us because Jesus took the hit in your place. So who are you? Who are you to stand above God and to say it's not enough? It is enough. Halas. Um, should we have sorrow over our sins? Absolutely. A godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. But guilt? No. Jesus took it, bore it, finished it. Another way is shame. So the psychiatrist that said guilt is I've done something bad, shame would be I am bad. I am bad. We carry this. You see this in drooping shoulders and hung heads. Um, To be shamed is to be exposed and naked, not just, not physically, but to have people that we don't want to see, see the things that we've done. And there's a sense of real shame. It's to be exposed in ways that we don't want to. it's to have things to hide and to carry that. Our first parents, it's very clear in Genesis that they, they were naked, not just physically, but that was an expression of how in every way they were totally known to each other, totally exposed, totally, hey, vulnerable. It's what we're made for, with each other and with God. And there was, it says in, at the end of Genesis 2, and they were not ashamed. But then when sin came into the world and when they rebelled and chose their own way, immediately what, what happened? They, they started hiding from each other, covering up. We hide from ourselves. We push down the truth and unrighteousness. We hide from each other and we hide from God. And we have this 
this shame. Um, when you look at almost every single picture of the cross of the crucifixion of Jesus, our Lord, you almost always see a loincloth. But that's just because of decorum. Nobody wants to show, nobody wants to show how shameful, nobody wants to shame our Lord. But he was willing to step into a shame that we can't even understand. He was completely stripped naked and lacerated front to back and punched and possibly defecated on, spit on, insulted in every way, not to mention the fact that he took our sin into himself. He was utterly, hey, utterly exposed, completely naked for us and bore our shame so that we could be completely brought in unashamed into the, the, the heart of the Father and be in front of each other no matter what we've done and to know, hey, he's taken my shame. That doesn't identify me anymore. It's in Christ alone, the one who is shamed for us and took our shame that we can begin to know one another, to know ourselves and to know God. Not only who made us, but who has died on a Roman cross for us. It wasn't just an act of pain. The Roman crucifixion was an act of utter shaming. And he took that for you. Um, so carrying shame is another way that shows us we don't believe these words, it's finished. Um, in a book that I'm just finishing called Just Mercy, highly recommended, very hard to read, Brian Stevenson, um, a, a, a lawyer, tells a story of, a true story of Ms. Banks, who's one of, he, he created an organization, Equal Justice Initiative, that specializes in representing people that nobody else wants to represent, the forgotten, but it's also especially people on death row. And Ms. Banks, um, she was an intellectually, I'm quoting him, disabled black woman living in Choctaw County, Alabama. She allegedly told a police officer that she was pregnant in order to get off other charges that were totally unrelated. Um, but months later, when she was found without a baby, she was charged with murder. Well, you said you had a baby and now you don't. She was charged with murder. I'm quoting from um, Brian again. Disabled and without adequate legal assistance, Ms. Banks was coerced, get this, into pleading guilty to killing a child who had never existed. True story. She made a deal to accept 20 years in prison for something she did not do. But she languished in prison. Why? Because nobody cared. Because she didn't have an advocate. And then in steps this man, this wonderful man, Brian Stevenson, he and his team, and they found her. And they were her advocate. And she got freed. The situation is both the same and different for us, friends, because we deserve what Jesus got on the cross. But in he stepped. In he stepped into this world and onto the cross as our advocate and took everything that we deserve. And then he finished it with the exclamation point, it's finished. It's complete. Um, any time that you feel accused, whether it's you or the devil or someone else, and a sin is brought up that you've committed in the past or in the middle of right now, remember that you have an advocate standing before God the Father who is saying to the Father, Father, remember, it's finished. Say that to the enemy next time, to telestai, halas, it's finished. He's done the work. He is your advocate, and the work is finished. There's nothing else that you can add. It's sufficient. I have a friend who says that the devil accuses her 
um, often and she feels condemned and, he, and she told me that her solution is often to cuss at the devil. And let me just tell you something, friends. That's not gonna do anything to him. In fact, that might encourage him. That's that kind of his language. Um, cursing is his language. But do you know a word that he hates, can't stand and will run from that will shut him up? To tell us die. It's finished. Man, you don't have anything on me, not because of me, but because of Jesus. Check this out. Martin Luther, the reformer, puts it this way. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face, you ever had that happen? I know you have. And declares that you deserve death and hell. True. Tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. And where we're heading, friends, is to Sunday. He's no longer on the cross, and the stamp of approval on him that a friend of mine said was the check clearing God the Father, accepting the full payment, not for him, for you, to remove your guilt and your shame, was the resurrection, and it's coming. Otherwise, I would be a fool to stand up here and do what I'm doing. We would not be here. We would be a scattered few. Three brief and immediate signs that when Jesus said, it's finished, bowed his head and gave his spirit up, it, it actually was, these words were true. The first is that he said to the thief today, the thief that had done nothing, nothing to deserve salvation and everything to deserve being crucified, right there. The thief believed that Christ was the king and was innocent. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. With me in paradise. The second sign is that the temple curtain, which separated all sinners from God and his presence, was torn, rent asunder. It was like God was just saying, anyone and everyone can now come because my son has been torn. He's the gateway. He's the door. He's the entrance. He's the portal. And it's finished. It's complete. It's done. So come on in. That's what God was saying. So why don't you come on in? And thirdly, after making payment for sins once and for all, what, it is, what does the scripture say? He sat, he ascended into heaven and what? He sat down. That's an ancient Near Eastern, biblical, Old Testament way of saying this. It's finished. I'm now on the seat of authority and I'm not standing up doing this, wondering is there anything else to do, wringing my hands. I'm in the seat of authority. I share the throne with the Father. You're seated here with me, we're told in Ephesians. You who believe on me, Jesus says. And I'm, I'm reigning. There's no work to be, there's no work left. So as I, as I close, as I finish up, two quick things. Is this, I just want you to ask yourself a couple questions. Is this, all that the word means, that our debt is cleared, that we're clean, clean of any stain. It is what it means, but is it all that it means? I wanna say emphatically no, and let me, let me try to illustrate this with an, with an illustration. Allow myself to introduce myself. Um, when you, let me go to computers. When you are, we've all probably, except for maybe little tinies, downloaded something on a computer. And man, I'm so impatient, I just wait. You know, you see the 1%, and then it's like 35%. Even up to 99% download. It's 99% downloaded, you can't use it. You can use 0% of something that's 99% downloaded. But when it hits that 100, it, it goes on down to the left corner or whatever and you click on it and it's like money. You can just dive in, anything you want, it's fully accessible. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
He's not just saying your payment is done. The payment and the clearing is the beginning of being able to just completely use the download, which is being a son or a daughter of the Father and enjoying all the benefits thereof. All of them. Um, And lastly, does this mean, last question, that we do nothing after we receive this forgiveness um, in Christ? I wanna say to you, on the contrary. Um, His work is finished means this. You can get to work. Paul says it this way, Ephesians 2 for by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, by the work of Christ, you have been saved through faith in Christ. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, his work, not yours, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, look, for good works, which God prepared, do we do this? That God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, having saved us by his work alone. So we get to enter into works he's created for us before the foundation of the world. Not in order to be accepted, but because we have been, because Christ has finished the work and brought us in. We're saved by Christ alone through faith alone, but as Martin Luther again said, faith that saves is never alone. So by our fruit, you will know us. Back to the beginning, earn this. Earn this. It was said to Private Ryan. He couldn't do it. At the end of the movie, he goes to, uh, find the name of the captain, who Tom Hanks, who, who gave his life for him. And he's like, I, I've tried to live a life worthy of your sacrifice, but he crumbles. He just like falls on the ground. He's an old man by then. He's lived his whole life. And he knows, how can you repay something like that? It crushed him because you can't, but he did. He was crushed in your place and he paid it and he earned it and it's done and it's finished. So what are our lives? We who believe on Christ, just an overflow of gratitude and thanksgiving. That's what they are. They're not trying to earn it. They're not carrying guilt. They're not self-flagellating. They're not carrying shame. It's finished. Instead of earn it or earn this, the last word of Christ to tell us die should put another banner over our lives. Earned. And this, enjoy this. Again, our lives should be a cascade of joy and gratitude flowing out from this word. It is finished. And like calves from the stall, let us enter this world, our mission field. Just exulting in what he's done. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, uh, what can we say? What can we add to what you've done and to what you've spoken in your very life? But thank you, we love you, we give ourselves to you wholly. In Jesus' name, for your glory, amen.